everyone. Welcome back to Global, a podcast from the International Republican Institute, where we share stories and insight from authentic voices and all things democracy related. I'm Daniela Montemorano, and I'll be your host. So on this episode, we're going to be revisiting Cuba, which we profiled back in season two. So you should check out that episode if you haven't already. This time around, rather than talking about the country's broader political history, we're going to focus specifically on the state of social and human rights in Cuba today. In particular, we want to examine how the narrative that the Cuban government and its sympathizers tells the world is vastly different than that of the day-to-day experiences of millions of Cubans. To help us tell that story, we spoke with three fantastic guests. First, Yaxis Siris is the current political advisor to the Cuban Human Rights Observatory. Um, a lawyer by training, Yaxis was forced to leave Cuba due to his political activism advocating for greater democratic freedoms. Second, Luz Escobar is a Cuban journalist currently living and reporting from Havana. She primarily writes for the independent news organization Cartorce y Medio. Recently, uh, she has re- repeatedly been prevented from leaving her home by the Cuban state security. Uh, and our final guest today is USAID Assistant Administrator for Latin America and the Caribbean, John Barça. Just as a heads up, some of these interviews were originally conducted in Spanish, so you're going to hear some of my voiceovers from my colleagues. First up, let's hear from Yaxis. My name is Yaxis Cetus. I'm a lawyer. I am Cuban. And currently, I am the main advisor of the Cuban Human Rights Observatory. Great. So we'll start off on the questions. First, we'll look at the report itself and then shift to some analysis of it. The report states that 53% of the population does not feel represented or does not know if the union to which they belong defends their rights as a worker. Why do you think people feel that way, that they feel isolated by union representation? This is proof that the unions in Cuba don't carry out the main functions of a union, like what happens in a normal democratic country, which is to represent the interest of the workers in a particular sector. In the Cuban case, the only ones that are legal are the ones that represent the interest of the state and of the Communist Party. The role of the unions in Cuba is not to defend the rights of the workers, but to instead be a transmission for the communist state. For example, when I was a professor in a university, I was expelled because I did not align with the ideas of the revolution or communism. The union did not defend me. Instead, it sided with the administration. The observatory found that 44.3% of Cuban homes measure 40 square meters or less. Out of this amount, almost two-thirds are occupied by at least three people. What are the social and political reasons behind this statistic? And what does that do for society at large? For example, how does it impact people's work? One of the main problems in Cuba, and one that we've confirmed with this survey, is around housing. The problem is in crowding, with lots of people living in very limited square footage. These statistics reflect the deficit in housing construction, and what worries us is the consequence that this has on a person. That's to say, in addition to the challenges to find food, a salary, to find ways to survive, on top of all of that, there's you're living in overcrowded conditions. It's impossible that a person isn't affected by these conditions. The Cuban government is nominally responsible for housing construction and repair. 
Yet 65% of Cubans report that their home is in danger of collapsing and or needs serious repair. How can you explain this discrepancy? The materials market, like all wholesale, is controlled by the Cuban government. The Cuban government has an iron grip on the economy in the first place. The other is the systemic failure of the economic system to produce goods and services. This is the basis for the housing challenge and is reflected in the study where a majority of respondents say they need assistance with their housing. More worrying is the percentage of Cubans who live in precarious situations. The main cause is the control that the Cuban government has on selling materials. Many people are able to repair their homes, but only using the black market or stealing from the state. That's to say, the closed economy and the deficiency of the system has directly caused corruption. Shifting to look a little bit more at how they've sold this vision. So you talked a bit about the difference between rhetoric and reality. Why is it so important to highlight this difference? If you look at a TV or the newspaper, Granma, remember that the media is controlled by the state, but you'll see that there's always an opening or a headline about the bad things that are happening in other places. People are honestly concerned and worried about what's happening in the rest of the world. The media has created an image of the outside world, and they're also selling it both inside and out. Outside, they say that in Cuba, people's rights are protected, and people have bought into this message. That's why this study is so important, because it demystifies and breaks this image that the government is selling, that in Cuba, people have their basic needs met. This is a lie, as we demonstrate here. And what can be done to help engage Cuban citizens, to show them that things are not the way they appear on the local press. This is where independent civil society can play a huge role. A civil society that's been slowly strengthening itself despite persecution from the state. That civil society, including independent small media organizations, that civil society and independent media groups are one of the ways that citizens' opinions are transmitted. It's how the messages get sent, how it gets shared and debated. It's how it gets sent to a friend from work and school. I think the challenge is that civil society needs to stop being an observer or just a pass-through and begin to make proposals for public policy that respond to these needs. As a Cuban, can you tell me what this means for you in terms of how these statistics either validate what you've experienced or do they tell a whole different story? I've been outside for several years. And even so, these statistics and the independent information that I see... What it does is remind me of all the personal memories I have. In Cuba, I lived in one of these small houses, like we mentioned here. I lived in Cuba with my brother, grandmother, and mother. Thanks to their work especially, we were able to survive in those conditions. I know what it's like and have lived not having access to water every day. I know what it's like to live with a house that's about to fall on you. I know what it's like to live with blackouts and the challenges to have enough to eat. I think what this study does is to remind me that this is the reality of the Cuban people and not what the government is saying. Statistic and polls are a snapshot in time, and these tell us what's happening today. From your experience, how has the story that these stats tell changed over the last 10 years? And have things gotten better or worse or stayed the same? Uh, what's the trajectory here? It's been 60 years, you know. That's 60 years that 11 million people 
and many who have been able to leave, but it's 11 million have lived in these conditions. Many have had to leave their country, abandon their family, and it's a situation that can get a tiny bit better, but it's the situation after 60 years due to the lack of liberty, of rights, due to a society that is not free for people to live their own lives. It's a society where if there's no urgent change, people's rights will not be respected, not only politically, but even in terms of people's livelihoods. So, Luz, what is the message that the Cuban government is telling its citizens about the current situation? And what tools does the government use to convince people that its narrative is true? The main tool the government uses to control people is manipulation. The strategy has always been to make ourselves seem disabled, the victims, and to never take any responsibility for what's happening. Independently of everything else, the country has a really poor economic performance and the government hasn't done any work, any changes for the country to get out of it. Everything they've done, whenever there's a problem like there is now, is justified by blaming external problems and not the internal government management issues that have been going on for such a long time over the 60 years that they've been in charge. For me, the main tool is manipulation. We have to remember that they have all the control for, of the official press and they transmit through the radio, the TV, and the internet. They not only control the media space, but also the journalists whose salaries they pay. The other way to know what's going on is to visit websites of the independent press. But many are blocked on Cuba servers and you can't access them. So Cuba has gone through hardships before, most notably through the Periodo Especial. How do people understand the situation they are in right now? The current situation is seen as just another step in the crisis. In Cuba, there have been long-standing crises, for example, the special period. The special period is still going on. Nevertheless, the 1990s had their own specific circumstances when many, many different elements coincided. And of course, that really upset livelihoods across the country. It wasn't only an issue of finding gas, but also food. Cuba essentially became paralyzed. Now, the way that people understand this current situation is we see it as a more of the same. This is just a crisis that is our turn to bear. It's cyclical. This is something that happened over and over and over. The responses from the government are always the same. Flee the country, try it, and survive. For those that stay, very few have the vision to mobilize themselves to try it and change it. What does the Cuban government gain from limiting people's understanding of what's going on? To be completely honest, the government gains everything. The current situation reflects their mismanagement. So to hide all their problems, people only see the invented successes of the government that are drawn up in the offices of the state press. For example, a great harvest of sugar or of potatoes, when in reality there isn't any sugar for Cubans or potatoes in stores. It's a joke for all of us because the government are experts at portraying a Cuba that doesn't exist. Now I want to shift to what the reality is around a few key sectors. Cuba has long prided itself in providing housing, education, health, and employment to its citizens. So let's start on to education. How do people see education in Cuba? Are people able to study what they want? Education is one of the things that the government sells as being top-notch and one of the best things about Cuba. 
at every level, from primary to secondary through university. In reality, really, it's a sector also going through a deep crisis where many people who were working as teachers with low salaries decide to quit. The sector has been in a spiral, as seen in academic indicators, in the low levels of education that youth have when entering university. When you go into a Cuban school, whether primary, secondary, or university, you notice that not only there's a lack of teachers, but there's a disconnect in the way teachers teach, as if the school itself has stayed behind in the past. That's the basis of it. There's a crisis with the teachers that the government hasn't been able to resolve, and that's become a larger crisis with the quality of education. In the health sector, Cuban doctors have long been used by the government as a tool of influence internationally. Are people able to find the treatments and medications necessary for their health problems? Health is another problem the government doesn't recognize. For example, hospitals are in horrible shape. Normally you get to a hospital and they can't see you since there's no space and there's no medicine. Or the doctor is busy since there's so few of them despite Cuba training lots of doctors and there being lots of our doctors outside the country in missions supported by the government. But this also contributes to the limited quality of doctors inside since so few work in the country. But the main issue is the same as what's affecting the schools. The infrastructure is really bad and they don't repair it. There's no medicine, there's no resources, there's not enough. Whether it's a hospital or a clinic or a specialized facility, it's the same problem. There's no guarantee that if you go in, they will see you today, and that the care will be good, and that there will be medicine available, and they have what they need for therapy or treatment. Normally, you're waiting months for a surgery or for a specialist to be able to see you, or hours in an emergency room. I mean, it's a mess. Yes, healthcare is free, but it's not quality care. Finally, on to employment. The Cuban economy is dominated by the state. Uh, currently, there are more part-time workers than full-time workers. How are people in Cuba able to actually make a living? Well, in terms of what I see in the economy and thinking about how someone can make a living, well, that's a mystery. There's a lot of ways. The people who work for a salary and earn a small amount that doesn't even last for a whole week have another means of income. In Cuba, there's a lot of families who get by thanks to family members that are outside of Cuba through remittances. But there's also people who do other work. For example, they have an official job, but they also do odd jobs or have a business selling secondhand goods or things that people bring them. Or they go out at night and sell some food that they cooked. Things like that. Because from the minimum wage, you can't survive. So there's lots of ways to do it, but mainly through looking for alternatives in the private sector or through remittances. So there's a clear difference between how the government says things are and what life is actually like. How do regular citizens learn to see past the government propaganda? Well, citizens are learning how to see beyond propaganda through their cell phones. Thankfully, and after several years, we're finally getting more and more connected. Having our devices connected to internet, even though it's still expensive and inconsistent, still works better than compared to the past. So people are seeing more and more information, even though they don't always look for it. I think the amount of Cubans who are informed has increased. I think the amount of Cubans who can contrast the official propaganda with what's actually happening has increased. 
It's been lots of years of propaganda. It's been several years of youth being indoctrinated. It's been several years of TV saying the same thing over and over and being echoed in newspapers and radio. It's complicated since you also can't ignore the Cubans who think according to the propaganda. Because that person is Cuban and lives here and they love their country and their sovereignty, just like you. And they just think differently than you and they have been manipulated. There's still a person who deserves to be informed and deserve to see they are victims of a system of manipulation and propaganda. And finally, Luz, what does it mean for you, as a Cuban, to see this contrast? Well, for me, the contrast is clear. The official press says one thing and reality is another. The contrast is boring, it's humorous, and sometimes it offends me. But from the perspective of a journalist, I have to try and overthrow that propaganda and work for more Cubans to open their eyes and see the country in which they're living, for more Cubans to connect with each other. The task is to shine a light into the darker corners that no state journalist is going to talk about to give voice to the censored artists and media, to cover the painful stories that the press ignores and will never show. For example, if there's a story where the government is at fault, the official press will not hold them responsible. Instead, they blame the Cubans, saying we are undisciplined and lazy, and never point to the real culprit of this mismanagement. In the end, the government is responsible for the bad things that are happening in the economy, in society, and in the daily lives of the country. Because we are in a totalitarian state where all decisions come from above, from the government. So Assistant Administrator John Barsa, thank you so much for speaking with us today. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. It's a, a pleasure and honor to be here with you today. So we're just going to dive right into it. This conversation is going to focus a bit on the recent report that IRI put out with the Cuban Social Rights Observatory. One of the things that stood out to us was misinformation and information manipulation. Members of our audience who aren't Cuba watchers might be surprised to hear that disinformation is a central theme in the discussion around human rights in Cuba. For decades, the government has waged disinformation campaigns both to portray Cuba as prosperous to the outside world and to convince Cubans on the island that any hardships that they experience can be blamed on the U.S. embargo. Starting with the big picture, how have such centrally directed disinformation campaigns impacted the development of a Cuban identity? It's not just impacted the Cuban identity, it's been a driving force. So since the beginning of the Cuban Revolution, disinformation has been a key tenant of how the regime actually not only stayed in power, but got in power. So uh, during the revolution, you had Fidel Castro and a literal handful of uh, guerrillas in the mountains in the eastern part of Cuba, in La Sierra Maestra. And they had um, New York Times reporter Herbert Matthews coming in there. It may not be generally well known, but disinformation started there. For example, Fidel Castro would adeptly have basically the same eight soldiers march repeatedly in the clearing. So when Herbert Matthews would look off in the distance, he would think he'd be seeing battalions, brigades of soldiers, you know, marching past when it was the same people going in a circle. So, you know, from disinformation back then to certainly when they aligned themselves with the Soviet Union, I mean, it's the propaganda machine that communist, you know, systems are so adept at using. They plugged into that. In our culture, we have a great value on open information flows and free press. 
from the Soviet viewpoint and the way the communist systems work, Cuba is very much leading the pack in terms of disinformation. Disinformation on two levels. Disinformation externally to portray reality to the outside world, which doesn't exist, and disinformation with their own people. So what we're starting to see, you know, it's been building over the years, is the Cuban people realize, I mean, all these lies about, you know, a betterment of society, you know, with the people. I mean, the people know that they're not getting the services, you know, from the system. When you have all these external efforts to portray this medical, you know, wonder that is modern-day Cuba, well, it's not really the case for the modern-day Cubans who don't have access to medicine or doctors. But the regime is very, very adept at using every tool in their disposal to wage propaganda internally and externally. And to what extent are people in other countries aware of the real situation inside of Cuba? Well, it's not just our countries aware or how much are they willing to turn a willful blind eye to it. Uh, sometimes, you know, they may be aware, but they may not want to talk about it because it doesn't fit into their narrative in terms of their larger image. There are elements of countries truly not knowing, and there's other countries who don't want to know, who choose not to know. So that's one of the challenges, you know, certainly for the U.S. government and how to publicize and bring human rights abuses to light, so things that are undeniable, awkward truths that people don't want to deal with. So certainly the imagery, you know, from 1959, Che Guevara, you know, trying to help the people, is that fits into somebody's, you know, narrative in terms of, you know, greater social justice. So the reality of that romantic vision is quite the opposite. But still you have individuals, organizations, and sometimes governments who still cling to that view of the left, but the extreme left that completely negates the needs of their people in terms of respecting human rights and policies. They're thinking, well, we're kind of to the left too, so we're going to give them a pass because the dictatorship works well with them on certain things. So it's not just that countries don't know what's going on. Unfortunately, too many countries are turn turning a willful blind eye to the abuses of what's going on. So you mentioned Cubans are starting to see disinformation. Why do you think those cracks are starting to appear on the inside? Because when reality is in your face every day, when you have empty store shelves, when you don't have access to medicine, when your neighbor expressed an opinion different from the government and disappeared and got put into a jail cell, it's kind of hard to ignore those realities. Now turning to talk about democratic development on the island. For democratic institutions to function properly, they require a citizen's trust. It strikes me that even if they were, there were truly free and fair democratic elections held on the island tomorrow, citizens still wouldn't trust the system. What will it take to build Cuban citizens' trust in a democratic system? There's so many preconditions that need to change before we can get to free and fair elections. When you open your mouth with a different opinion from what the regime puts out and you are put in jail, this is not an environment conducive to people wishing to run for office, even if they were allowed to run for office. You have to be able to tolerate dissent and open discussion. You have to be able to put the propaganda aside to deal with the challenges as they truly are. Unfortunately, as much as we would 
all love, well, most of us would love and desire free and fair elections in Cuba, the system just doesn't allow it. Not right now. So the preconditions that you mentioned, there are many of them. Uh, how can the international community move to support democratic actors within society? Well, there's two levels. The first level is pushing on the principles of freedom of speech, respect for human rights in the aggregate. But at the micro level, Jose Daniel Ferrer, human rights actors, everyone who's acted, these are tangible examples of violations of human rights. So you cannot turn a blind eye to the negation of somebody's human rights and the torture of an individual. You have to talk about the principles of respect for human rights and respect tolerance for dissent at the macro level, at the theory, but at the end of the day, it's people's lives. It's the examples. So every time somebody is condemned, put into prison for things that these need to be denounced. Cuba has been long involved in other parts of the world. It strikes me that as this disinformation is made more clear and there are changes on the inside, there is also change that happens on the outside in terms of how people perceive Cuba. You'd mentioned the willful blind eye and people choosing not to know. Do you think that people are now choosing to know? I think with the advent of technology, the spread of information is causing secondary and tertiary effects that people have not been able to count on. And this affects Cuba internally and externally. Internally, a few months ago, there was a tornado in Havana. And Diaz-Canel goes over to tour this. And it's something that never happened before. You had Cuban citizens being able to film and condemn you know, Diaz-Canel in person while he's there for the lack of public services. So one, that's kind of unique that it was filmed, but then it went viral and it went off across the islands. Advent of technology is making harder to keep people in silos in the dark about what's going on. Externally, we have other changes that are taking place in the region as well. Part of my portfolio is heading up the Latin American Caribbean Bureau of USAID. We look to support you know, responsible governments. We try to support civil society throughout the region. And certainly with the advent of technology, it leads to greater press freedoms. What we're seeing is people having more realization of what's going on in their countries, more of a sense of self-direction. What we're seeing today play out in Bolivia is a great example of people realizing, you know what, maybe the system that was going on, we didn't get a fair shake. And when you had the police and military saying, we're not going to fire on our people. So I think this is an important time for the region. So what's happening with Cuba, what they are adept at doing is trying to deflect the conversation. So one of the things what we're seeing is, according to open source reports, how Cuban has been an element of destabilization in countries across the region, where they're trying to change the narrative, trying to get people to not focus on what's going on in Cuba. The more there's destabilization and crises throughout the Western Hemisphere, the less focus there is on Cuba and what they're doing internally to their own people. The relationship with Venezuela is existential for the Cubans. This is the most dangerous time for the Cuban regime since the special period and the collapse of the Soviet Union. They have come to depend so much on Venezuela that they really have no alternatives. When Venezuela becomes a free and democratic state, the Cuban government is going to be in a very difficult time because the Cuban regime 
knows that their system has failed so entirely that without the Venezuelan government, they're going to have a hard time staying afloat. Anything that we can do to support the free flow of information, this is who we are as a people. Again, back to, the, back to your first question about deception. The Soviet communist model is to control information and, and to call a cat a dog, to call a bicycle a car, to try to pit their own narrative. Our model is completely different. Our model is to empower people with information so they can make their own decisions about how they should be governed and how they should live our lives. It's completely opposite v worldviews, which is why our strength lies in the fact that we believe if everyone has access to truth, you know, democracy will prevail. People can have a right to have their own self-government and lead better lives. At the end of the day, democracy will prevail. It's just a challenge. Now, I'm interested in your personal reaction as a Floridian with Cuban heritage. What does it mean to you that the Cuban government conducts itself in this way? I'm uh, half Cuban. On my father's side, the earliest ancestor who came to the United States came over from England in the early 1700s. Uh, my mother and her family uh, came over uh, soon after the revolution in the early 60s. So, yes, it is kind of personal for me in that being able to see firsthand what the revolution has meant in terms of a human cost. You're right, it's not an academic exercise for me. When, you know, so I take my mother's example. Uh, she graduated from the University of Havana with a doctorate in education. She was a teacher in Santiago de Cuba. And, you know, she was living her life, her own dreams as a young person, her potential, trying to make a sense of the world, start a family, have this career, and it was completely uprooted and sent to the United States. To having to start from scratch. So if you, if you believe that, you know, you know, we're all here, you know, each person with their own human potential, not only to live and express ourselves in some way with whatever God-given talents we may have, but our ability to help societies. If we all, if you think about that as an individual, think about that as an entire society. How many tens and thousands, millions of people like my mother who could not only live to their own human potential but contribute to society and it was just completely uprooted it's terrible. So you see the people in Cuba right now, smart people, kind people, intelligent people who can contribute so much, and they're just living in poverty, and poverty with no access to opportunities, no way to really make a contribution and fulfill their lives. It's, it's the theft of the human potential on a massive scale. It is just morally reprehensible on so many levels. So yeah, it's personal. It's tragic. I I understand the pain and the tragedy every day. So and how individuals or countries can turn a blind eye, it, it just amazes me continuously. And finally, to close us out, why should this matter to Americans? Why should the average American care about the way the Cuban government conducts itself? Certainly there are Americans who are more attuned to what's going on internationally to the extent that we're coming up with an American citizen who believes that foreign affairs do affect our internal things in terms of trade. Uh, what go happens in our hemisphere does affect individuals here. First of all, on an economic scale, um, look at all the wide-scale you know, devastation that's occurred in you know, Venezuela, you know, help caused by the Cubans. 
difficulties with the other economies flowing. It's at the economic level. On the moral level, I mean, how do you permit this to take place in our backyard? How do we, as, as moral people, how can we permit such wide-scale organized human suffering taking place? So I do believe in American exceptionalism. I do believe, you know, you know, we have a role in this world. We are moral leaders in, on, on this planet. And as such, I, you know, every American, regardless of party affiliation, belief, locale, I believe we should all, you know, join hands and just condemn evil when we see it. So uh, thank you so much, Assistant Administrator Barca, for sharing both your analysis of disinformation Cuba as well as your uh, personal reactions uh, as someone with Cuban heritage to the political situation on the island. Thanks for having me. If you want to learn more about the issues we discussed today, definitely check out the Social Rights Observatory's report, The State of Social Rights in Cuba. It's full of data that really highlights how dire the situation is for Cuban citizens to access government services that provide for their most basic human needs. I'd like to thank our guests for speaking with us. I certainly learned a lot, and I hope you guys did too. So like us, rate us, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Daniela Montemorano, and thanks for listening to Global. Global.